2: Welcome to Diffusion, broadcasting across Australia on 2SCR and streaming across the globe direct into your auditory cortex. I'm Mick, not that kind of Dr Cavazzini, and this week we have a packed studio and a packed show. First up, Dr Julianne Popple will be interviewing Bridget Murphy about lizard hatchlings. Ian Wolfe will be catching up with Professor Martin Van Kirkvick at the Southern Cross Astrophysics Conference. And the soon-to-be Dr Victoria Bond we'll be talking about some current affairs and some great documentary. But First up, here's Therese Chun with the news.
3: Engineers at the University of Leicester have developed a method for calculating the force required to stab with a broken glass bottle, a study which is expected to aid the field of legal forensics. The study was conducted by PhD student Gary Nolan, Through the analysis of shattered glass impressions on a skin stimulant made of foam and silicon rubber, the study found that the force required for penetration of the skin could not be predicted by the bottle wall thickness. Due to the fraction of glass creating a unique stabbing surface for each bottle, being able to predict the amount of force for penetration in a stabbing is difficult, and so reconstructions of incidents involving broken glass bottles can be misleading. Mr. Nolan said, Our study provides the first set of penetration force data for broken glass bottles. Due to the presenting broken glass geometry, most require a much larger amount of force, which suggests that the majority of stabbing incidents involving bottles would require greater force than those involving knives. The research is a collaborative effort with Materials Knowledge Transfer Network and the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining with the aim of developing glass that had less potential to inflict damage if it shatters. So in some local Sydney
0: news, we thought it'd be interesting to give you a heads up about a screening of the movie Gaslands. Gaslands is being screened at 7 p.m. Wednesday, August 10th, in the Carey Packer Education Center at RPA. Gaslands is about a new method of obtaining natural gas called fracking, which sounds like it should be something out of Battlestar Galactica. Actually, it stands for hydraulic fracturing, And the reason there's some concern about it is that in addition to releasing natural gas, it releases lots of other gases, which can be quite bad for your health. Interestingly, in New South Wales, there's currently a bill working its way through the Senate because there's been discussion of using fracking to get gas from St. Peter's, which is a neighborhood in the Inner West. So if you live in Sydney and you want to know more about this, check out Gaslands. Once again, 7 p.m. Wednesday, August 10th at the Royal Prince Alfred Carey Packer Auditorium you can check out the Facebook page. Gaslands, free screening, RPA.
2: Thanks, Victoria. Also on this Wednesday night is a lecture at the University of Sydney Science Forum entitled Synthetic Biology, the Next Generation of GM. Now, genetic modification is, for many people, a dirty word. But imagine plants that could produce fuels, polymers and even drugs. Imagine cells that could clean up oil spills or break down waste and improve our health. This was once only possible in the realm of science fiction, but last year an organism called Cynthia was created, a bacterial cell with an entirely manufactured genome. Contributing to this work was Dr. Jim Hasselhoff from the Department of Plant Sciences at the University of Cambridge. He'll take us to the cutting edge of this emerging field and explain how synthetic biology goes beyond traditional modification of inserting single genes into model organisms. He uses engineering principles to design and construct brand new living systems from scratch and will show many of his award-winning images of hypercolored plant cells. So come and listen to Dr. Jim Hasselhoff at the University of Sydney Eastern Avenue Auditorium on City Road. The lecture starts at 5:45 p.m. on Wednesday the 10th of August and is supported by the Sydney Science Forum. In Sydney on Saturday, August 13th, there will be the Live Futures Festival at the College of Fine Arts in Paddington. Go there for all things future. There'll be talks, there'll be art installations, there'll be movies, there'll be children's activities. It's a great day for everyone to have a look and think about the future. Following that, on August 14th, will be Robot Serial Killers. This is Robot Wars in
4: Serial Space in Chippendale in Sydney.
2: Next up, Dr Julianne Popple talks to Bridget Murphy, a PhD student from the University of Sydney, who's working on the reproductive biology of Australian lizards. She talks to Bridget about lizard live birth and the evolution of cancer.
1: I wanted to know what inspired you to study lizard biology in the first place. Mm, That's a good question, actually. And I've thought about
5: this, and I think it was in my blood, so to speak, because my dad has a PhD in genetics. So that's the genetics part covered. My mum is a midwife, so she delivers human babies, and ever since I was a little kid I've always loved catching lizards in the garden, so if you put that together, I was always destined to study the genetics of lizard live birth.
1: Most people would think of lizards as being exclusively egg-laying, but that's not the case, is it? How many species actually give birth to live young?
5: About 20% of lizards and snakes give birth to live young and a few really common Sydney lizard species give birth to live young that people might not be aware about. Um, for example, uh, blue tongue lizards give birth to live young and there's a really interesting species um, which I'm sure we'll come to later called the, uh, the three-toed skink which leaves its life entirely underground but is really common all over Sydney. It has very, very small legs and looks a lot like a snake, but it gives birth to live young as well.
1: If you want to understand the evolution of live birth, wouldn't it make more sense to study, say, mice or the classic lab rat? Why lizards? Um, lizards are really good for studying
5: the evolution of live birth because there are egg-laying and live-bearing lizards that you can use for comparison. So if you look at mammals, all mammals, with the exception of monotremes, which lay eggs, all mammals are live-bearing. So there's not much of a comparison that you can make to see how things have changed during that evolutionary process. 20% of lizards are live-bearing, and we compare those to really closely related egg-laying lizards to see what might have happened during that evolutionary process. So I've studied two species. First uh, was the three-toed skink that I mentioned before. It lives in Sydney as well as living further north in New South Wales, particularly around Armidale. And the really interesting part about that species is that within its range, it does different things in terms of its reproduction. So in Sydney, it lays eggs, whereas uh, further north, in the colder climates around the inland mountainous regions around New South Wales, it gives birth to live young. So I've studied the three-toed skink as well as the more common eastern water skink that you might see um, around the coastal areas around Sydney.
1: For the three-toed skink, why do you think there is that geographic variation?
5: The current theory, or, or one of the theories out there for the reason why lizards might have evolved to give birth to live young, is cold climate hypothesis. There are a few competing hypotheses, but this one suggests that if you're a lizard, you're cold-blooded or ectothermic and you receive all of your energy from the sun. If you are a pregnant lizard about to be mum and you want to make sure that your uh, babies are going to have the best chance of surviving, if you lay eggs and lay them in a nest, you can't, as the pregnant lizard, you can't be sure what types of temperature they might experience in that nest. So temperatures might get very cold or they might get very hot and those eggs those babies in the eggs may not survive that sort of fluctuation in temperature if as the pregnant lizard you can hold those eggs inside you and give birth to live young when they're fully developed you can control the temperatures that they experience during their development by perhaps basking in the sun if you if they need to warm up or or hiding under a rock if they need to cool down.
1: With the live-bearing 3 toned skinks, does that mean they produce fewer offspring than the egg-laying ones? They produce the same number of offspring, but the crucial difference is that
5: they both actually have an eggshell, which you might not think with a live-bearing lizard that they would have an eggshell, but they in fact both have an eggshell. But the big difference between them is that the eggshell in the live-bearing Three-toed skinks is very very thin. When these eggs get laid, or or the live young is born, they get they're born with this very thin membrane, which is which is in fact the eggshell. But you can see right through it, so it's like a piece of Glad wrap right around the right around the embryo, and that bursts within twenty four hours. So it's it's practically being born live, whereas the ones in Sydney have an eggshell which is opaque so you can't see through it, it's white, and they lie in the nest or underground for about a week before they hatch.
1: Wow, I don't think I'll ever look at glad wrap in quite the same way again. How on earth did you get from researching lizard reproductive biology to exploring how this uh, relates to cancer? It's an interesting connection, I agree.
5: It wasn't planned at all. So part of my um, PhD is to study how oxygen gets passed from the maternal system to the embryo while it's developing. And the way that they do this is via the placenta. So the lizard placenta is a lot like a human placenta in that there is a very close, very close apposition of the mum's and the baby's membranes to form a placenta. And these membranes have lots of blood vessels in them. And this means that oxygen and all of those gases that the embryo needs to breathe gets passed between the mum and the baby very quickly. So I was looking at some of the genes which might be controlling how these blood vessels grow in the placenta and while I was looking for those genes I happened to come across a particular gene which has to do with cancer in humans which I was very surprised about. So this particular gene called, for short, VEGF or Vascular Endothelial Growth Factor (laughs) (laughs) 111, if you want to be specific. Say that three times really fast. (laughs) Yeah. This particular gene has only ever been found previously in human-cultured skin cells, which have been subjected to conditions which mutate them. So conditions like UV light and and, uh, particular chemicals which can cause the DNA inside those cells to mutate. So this particular gene has been flagged by scientists who work on cancer as a particular, potentially a particular marker which signifies when cells turn from healthy cells to cancerous cells. Now this particular gene, VEGF, hasn't been found anywhere else in the entire animal kingdom except in a petri dish of human skin cells which have been mutated. While I was looking for for genes inside this three-toed skink, it turned up. So that that was the
1: connection between the, the two. So Bridget, why is this cancer gene in a lizard? That's a really good question. And I think it's part of the
5: evolutionary past of lizards and a whole lot of other different vertebrates. And I think w- the reason why this gene is there is because there are there's actually an evolutionary connection, or so there's thought, an evolutionary connection between cancer and an animal's ability to give birth to live young. So the hypothesis is that when animals evolved to give birth to live young, there was a certain set of genes which became activated or which changed to allow that character to evolve. Those sets of genes, so genes which cause blood vessels to grow, uh, genes which allow the baby to hide from the maternal immune system. So if you think about it, the the baby really is alien to the mother because it only shares half of its DNA. The other half comes from the father and and really is detected as something that shouldn't be there. So all of these genes which which allow the, the embryo to grow inside the mum have actually been hijacked in an evolutionary sense, by cancer. And that's how cancer, or so it's thought, has evolved during the ages by hijacking all these different systems of genes in order to fly under the radar of the, the body system. So that's, that's why I think perhaps this VEGF gene is found in both this live-bearing lizard, or perhaps a better way to say it is this lizard which is in the process of evolving from egg laying to live bearing as well as in these pre-cancerous cells
1: in the dishes in the laboratory. A disturbing twist to the miracle of life indeed. Thanks very much for joining us Bridget. Thanks for having me.
2: That was Bridget Murphy speaking with Dr Popple about her kooky three-toed skink and how it sheds a new perspective on the emergence of cancer in humans. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, broadcasting on 2SER and the Australian Community Radio Network and streaming on the interweb at www.diffusionradio.com. If you'd like to send emails, write to diffusion at 2SER.com. Martin van Kirkvick is a professor of astronomy at the University of Toronto. He spoke to Ian Wolfe at the fourth annual Southern Cross Astrophysics Conference at the Sydney Maritime Museum about his research into neutron stars, and an alternative theory of supernova formation.
4: Well, there are different types of supernovas, and the the ones that I've been working on most are uh, ones where you you have a white dwarf, so an an object like what the sun sun will leave at the end, and somehow you manage to uh, rekindle the nuclear fires. And if you do that in a white dwarf, then um, the burning is unstable, and it is like one huge thermonuclear bomb. And it causes one of the brightest type of supernovae that uh, that we see. And it's the type that we use to to study how the, the universe uh, expands. And in particular, that has led to the, the very strange discovery that the uh, expansion of the universe is accelerating. So I'm particularly interested in those type of supernovae. And um, the, the one thing that is that, uh, is that we don't really know how we get to rekindle the nuclear fires. So there's a, a standard idea for that. <coughs> and that is that, um, basically, you you, t- uh, you get a mass. You, so you take a white dwarf, say that uh, the sun left, and you have it in a binary system. And the other star in that binary starts to donate mass to the white dwarf. Now, as you do that, this white dwarf becomes more and more massive. That, that's the standard picture. Um, but there is only a a maximum mass that that it can possibly exist. At. And just before you reach that, the white dwarf becomes smaller and smaller. It shrinks, but it is still becoming more massive. So it becomes extremely dense in the center. And it becomes so dense that effectively you, you uh, start pushing carbon uh, nuclei. Uh, Inside each other, they start fusing. That releases energy. That makes it hotter. That makes this fusion go faster, and you get a runaway that explodes the whole white dwarf. So this is a, a very nice picture in that it, it uses um, a, a fundamental mass limit that was found by uh, by Chandrasekhar, and you uh, you you know that this is at some level has to happen. Uh, and the other thing that is nice that it it seems to explain quite naturally. That, that all these explosions would be very similar, because they all have the same might worth with the same mass that suddenly explodes and then gives the same luminosity, and that's why we can use them to to sort of see how the universe expands. So that that's the standard picture. And what's your idea that's different to this? Yeah, so I should, I should first maybe say a little bit what, what what triggered this, is that... that I said, oh, well, they're all the same white dwarf. They should all make the same explosion. But if we actually look at these explosions, they're not all the same. Uh, some are a bit shorter and less bright, and some are longer and are brighter of, of their own. And But there's a very nice correlation between the two. And that's what we use to, to still use them as what we call, it's not a standard candle. So if you see a supernova, it's not that you know intrinsically it has a certain wattage. But we, by measuring how long it is on on the sky, we can infer what what should be. And that is actually somewhat unexpected in in, in this model, because they were all the same white dwarf. That was this really nice picture that we had. And uh, the other thing is that we noticed that if you look at a galaxy where where all the stars are forming very recently, then typically in those galaxies happen to be these brighter, longer lasting explosions. Well, if we look at a galaxy with only very old stars, there's only the, the fainter, shorter ones. And so my alternative picture is is I started sort of going back and think, well, here I have this ball of carbon and oxygen, and I somehow want to ignite a fire. Well, what would you do if you ignite a fire? You you hold a match to it. And I wondered, instead of compressing it, of course, if you have nitroglycerin, you compress it and it explodes. So that's a good mechanism, too. But you also could just heat it. And one way in which you could heat a white dwarf very quickly, which is what you need to do, if you try to heat it slowly, it cools down on its own. Uh, faster in the center by emitting neutrinos. Um, but if you try to heat it, uh, you could perhaps heat it quickly if you have two white dwarfs. And uh, um, if they're close enough together, then Newton's laws are not quite correct anymore. So they don't stay in orbit around each other, but you, they emit gravitational waves, as, as Einstein predicted. And very slowly, they'll come, uh, they'll come together. At some point, they'll merge. And that is uh, that makes them very hot. It actually turns out it doesn't immediately make them hot enough. That's why people had discounted this as a possibility. But So in a few minutes, they merge. But if you then look, yeah, but what's left is some kind of rapidly rotating object with, with some leftover material around it. And as that leftover material also uh, accretes on, on the white dwarf, it compresses it, makes it even hotter, and then I think you can explode them. Uh, so that's an, an, uh, another model. And... Uh, It sort of doesn't rely at all on this maximum mass, it's sort of irrelevant in this picture because you just heat them. And uh, the one thing that it does do is that if these two white dwarfs are a bit more massive, you naturally get that you get a bigger bang. And if they're a bit less massive, you get a less uh, luminous explosion. And uh, because massive stars always live shortest, and they are the ones which make the more massive white dwarfs, you expect that in a galaxy where where just recently a lot of new stars were born, you'll have more massive white dwarfs. So typically, you'll get a more luminous, uh, you get two more massive white dwarfs which merge and make a more luminous explosion. And in an older galaxy, there's only old stars left of lower mass, which make lower mass white dwarfs, and therefore you get less luminous explosions. So that that's sort of it's a bit of a long story, but that's that's my new idea. And what leads you to believe that this is uh, more likely than the traditional idea of the white dwarfs <coughs> just getting heavier right. uh, up to the maximum? Yeah, so partly I've said that already that, at least in this picture, it's natural that there's a range in luminosities, but on the other hand, it's still natural that they're they're very similar because you have these mergers and they completely mess up everything. You get just one ball of carbon and oxygen rapidly rotating of different masses. There's another part that I I didn't mention yet, is that people tried very hard to find the type of binaries that that could lead to these explosions. And for the, the, the standard picture, we actually found that there aren't that many binaries where we think that eventually they will explode. They're not, not really enough. If we count just the number of explosions, then you, you, you can basically do a simple calculation. You can ask, well, how many white dwarfs do we form over a long period of time, and how many of them explode? And it turned out that 1% of all white dwarfs that you form over the life of the universe, they will eventually explode. And uh, that, that's actually sort of surprisingly large number, because there will be a lot of stars which are on their own. Well, they, they're never going to explode. There are a lot of stars which are in binaries, but they're so white that they don't influence each other's life. And uh, by, by insisting that you make a white dwarf that's really massive, and that you grow it to that mass, you basically don't have enough progenitor systems, as we call it. And that's another thing that my, my idea resolves, because I, I don't need to have that the two white dwarf masses together are, are incredibly uh, high. So I have more progenitor systems, and I think uh, that's OK. Uh, so that that's another uh, argument for that. And then the final argument is that it seems, but that, that's something that I, I haven't really worked on so much myself. But it was one of the other talks in the conference, that, that it's one thing to ignite the nuclear fire, but then you have to calculate how does the explosion actually work. Now that's uh, not trivial, I don't know really how to do that, but other people do, and it turns out that for these really massive white dwarfs, it's actually you need to do something arbitrary. You have to start with burning in a way that happens in a in a car, too, that's called a deflagration where you ignite the fire and there's a burning front going out just because uh, the fuel is hot and it heats something next to it, which then also gets hot and burns. Um, but while you're doing that, somewhere halfway through, you suddenly have to decide that actually it should be a real explosion with a shock in the car that's called knocking if the, the basically the the the, <coughs> the burning doesn't come at the right time and it is too forceful. Um, but we don't really know why that would happen. But it is absolutely needed to make the right times of explosions. Now in my model, and that was again that is a, a person by a work by 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 someone else by Dr. Stewart uh, Sim. Uh, who is actually in Australia. Uh, And uh, he showed that for these lower-mass white dwarfs, you can just directly explode them. That's fine. That gives the right light curve. So it it makes life a bit simpler in that sense too. Again, that's not my work, but I was very happy to to hear about that because it seems to make my picture better. It does. I guess the last question is a bit
0: less related. You tell me a little bit about your work on neutron stars. Yes.
4: Yeah, so I also... Actually, much of my work... Over uh, the last decades or so, has been on neutron stars. It's sort of the the corpses of, of more massive stars, much more dense. A white right dwarf is a ton per cubic centimeter. A neutron star is um, I, I always forget what it actually is. <laughs> it's hard to even measure it in human terms. But if you take all of humanity together and squeeze it to one cubic centimeter, that's how dense it is. And there we, we want to we those of six is some level more mysterious. We don't really know how they work in the interior. And I've um, I've been trying to to find out what happens in inside them. And uh, f- for instance, um, for a white dwarf, we know this this maximum mass that I mentioned, right, where there is a maximum limit for a white dwarf. We can calculate it very precisely. It's 1.44 solar masses. For a neutron star, we don't know that because we don't really know what happens if you squeeze matter that much. Um, so determining that maximum mass is interesting and and One of the things I've been doing is trying to find binary systems where we then can measure the motion of the neutron star around its companion and and measure the masses that way. And we found that there's one neutron star which has a mass of, of over two solar masses. Now ours is actually a bit uncertain. There was a much more certain number almost at the same time so from a, from a different binary system, but that, that showed that matter is actually remains quite normal. People had thought, oh, if you squeeze it enough, there might be all kinds of new interesting particles that come out. But if that were the case, then such a massive neutron star could not exist. So in some sense, we simplified life a little bit.
2: That was Professor Martin van Kirkvik from the University of Toronto talking about neutron stars and a new way of making stars explode. The Southern Cross Astrophysics Conference is supported by CSIRO and the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Thanks for listening to Diffusion Science Radio. With me in the studio were Therese Chun, Bridget Murphy, Dr Julianne Popple, Victoria Bond and, of course, Ian Wolfe. And the show was produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Mick Cavazzini. Join us next week inside your audio device of choice for more science-wondering, Next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Lachlan Whatmore on guitar.